You're listening to the Politics Theory of the Podcast. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is the writer and cultural critic Jacqueline Rose. We spoke about Jacqueline's new book, The Plague, Living Death in Our Times. We talked about what the COVID-19 pandemic revealed about contemporary society and whether the initial wave of global solidarity provoked by the crisis was purely a mirage since the pandemic so dramatically highlighted and exacerbated existing inequalities. We also talked about the Ukraine crisis, how Jacqueline connects to the themes of war and pandemic in the book, and how Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion has had the troubling consequence of appearing to redeem the foreign policy and security establishments of the United States and Britain, the authors of some of the worst military crimes of recent decades. We also talked about the philosopher and mystic Simone Weil and her refusal to adopt a position of heroic innocence when supporting the Allied cause during World War II and her insistence on being cognizant of the crime of French colonialism while nevertheless supporting the fight against Nazi Germany. And finally, we talked about Sigmund Freud's concept of the death drive and how it was informed by his own encounter with a pandemic, the so-called Spanish flu, that took the life of his daughter Sophie in 1920. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO's supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is The Party's Over, The Rise and Fall of the Conservatives, From Thatcher to Sunak, by Phil Burton Cartledge. Today it is not a question of if, but when. What we are watching is the collapse of the most successful political party in Europe. Despite winning the December 2019 general election, the Parliamentary Conservative and Unionist Party is facing its own demise. The party's over, the rise and fall of the Conservatives from Thatcher to Sunak, beginning with the Thatcher era, charts the flaws and failings of each successive leader, all the way to Sunak. Danny Dawling called the book A Masterful Account, and Grace Blakely says it should be considered critical reading for socialist academics, activists and politicians alike. The Party's Over, The Rise and Fall of the Conservatives from Thatcher to Sunak by Phil Burton Cartledge is now out in a new edition from Verso Books. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your August reading if you join the Verso Book Club. And now to today's interview. Jacqueline Rose is the co-director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities and a co-founder of Independent Jewish Voices. She's a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books, and her books include Sexuality in the Field of Vision, The Haunting of Sylvia Plath, Mothers, An Essay on Love and Cruelty, and On Violence and on Violence Against Women, which was the subject of our last conversation, and you can find a link to that episode in the description of today's show. Her new book, published by Fitzcarraldo Editions, is The Plague, Living Death in Our Times. In the introduction to the book, you write that one of the most difficult aspects of these past years has been to square what felt at the start like a new global solidarity in response to the pandemic with the inequalities which rose to the surface of public life, exposing the brute vulnerability of the subordinate, marginal, oppressed and the poor. No amount of common purpose has been able to thwart the power of wealth and status to determine who lives and who dies. Whether in the guise of Big Pharma blocking patent waivers on COVID-19 vaccinations, or the surge in domestic violence, or the daily threat of racist killings on the streets. The pandemic struck like a force of nature, but like the climate catastrophe, it also laid bare just how far nature is a plaything of human whim. 
looking back from the standpoint of summer 2023, do you see that moment that accompanied the onset of the pandemic when something of a significant reordering of society seemed at least more possible than hitherto? Do you see that as wholly naive and illusory? Or do you think there was an opportunity there that for various reasons wasn't grasped? I don't think it was naive or delusory. I think it was a moment of profound reckoning in the way that Camus describes it in his book, The Plague, which is that the putrescent sores of a corrupt social and unjust social regime start to fester and then bubble up to the surface like ulcers or boils that cannot contain their own poisonous liquid. And therefore suddenly you're confronted with something which you have spent a lot of time, or many people, to be more precise, have spent a lot of time choosing not to see. And there is a parallel here with the collapse of communism, so-called collapse of communism in 89 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, when I had a friend who said the incredible thing about the fall of the Soviet regime that followed and the collapse of the wall was that you could actually, well, that poor people on the streets of New York suddenly became visible for the first time because up to that point, to draw attention to them would get you accused of communism, of communist sympathizers. But once it looked, although this is an open question, that communism had definitively failed, not to speak of socialism, which is different, of course, but once it looked that communism had failed, suddenly things were visible because there was no way of palming them off or palming off the observation. So I do believe there are these moments where you see things that you haven't seen before. And I think domestic violence is another example where it pierced public consciousness in the sense that suddenly the unsafeness of the domestic space became something that was popularly understood, as in that famous poster, abusers always work from home, which I thought was a stroke of sheer genius, by the way. You know, at the same time as the mantra of staying at home was being presented as a kind of a solval by certain people on the right in the UK, for example. So I don't think it was naive. I don't think it was delusory. Whether it was an opportunity or not has to be answered, I think, in two ways. One, it was an opportunity that's continuing, which is to say that I think there are forms of solidarity. The extraordinary numbers of people who participated in Black Lives Matter's protests, there was a kind of an awakening of racial consciousness. And I think it was an opportunity. I think that's still there. It was an opportunity. It wasn't naive or delusory. But I think what we all couldn't see then was the weight of the opposition and hatred which those kinds of initiatives were going to provoke. So they looked like a kind of moment of opening where freedom around different forms of sexualities, for example, could be spoken, racist violence and decolonization and, you know, the Coulston statues going into the river and all of that, all that was a huge energizing. Well, of course, if you have a political analysis of that, you know that the state will come down on you with a ton of bricks. So, you know, the, the ban against protests before they've even happened. So if you think they're going to be an obstacle, they're now going to be illegal. 
And equally dreadful, I think, is the suggestion that in essential services, if those people who choose not to go on strike at a time of strike are not willing to be moved to fill the spaces of the workers who are on strike, they will face the sack. I mean, this is legislation that's being proposed in the UK, and it, it's flirting with autocracy, if not fascism. So I would say it was precisely because it was not naive or delusory and because it was an opportunity that it is now being crushed so viciously by state power. And that struggle is not over. So the collection of essays in the book is bookended by the first UK lockdown that was announced on the 23rd of March 2020 and Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the end of February 2022. And you suggest that just as the pandemic offered the mirage of global unity, so did Vladimir Putin's invasion, in spite of the distinct lack of enthusiasm for the war in much of the global south. And although you're clear in your opposition to the invasion, you're also highly suspicious of the narrative of the good war, quote unquote. And on that subject, you draw on the work of Simone Weil, who was a rather reluctant supporter of the Allied cause in World War II, in part because of her concern with French imperialism. Can you talk a bit about why the book, which after all is titled The Plague, is not restricted solely to the COVID-19 pandemic and how you see the connections between the Ukraine war and COVID-19? One of the cases, uh, stories I discuss in the book is about the soldier in America who lived a period of depression and shame at the various wars. Iraq would be the most obvious one and Afghanistan in which America had played the leading part. And he wasn't just horrified at what America had done by precipitating those wars. He was horrified by what he found himself capable of as a soldier. And as he said, all civilization collapses. And, and he was just appalled at how easy it was to shed the diktats which had made him a good Christian man up to that point. And the Ukraine war for him was a form of reparation because the stakes were so clear. It was unambiguous. And he says, how many wars are unambiguous? So I found this both understandable, but also very, very chilling. It was as if one good war redeems the bad killings of the one that went before. So there's good killing and there's bad killing. Yes. And uh, rather like the way in which George Bush Sr., suggested that the first Gulf War had enabled the United States to kick the so-called Vietnam syndrome. Yes, indeed. And of course, Hitler's war, the war against Hitler, about which we could also, Simon Weil has a lot to say about that. What this led to me was the concept of virtue, which, which the book concludes, which is what is going on that people are so desperate to secure their own innocence and to feel that there is nothing wrong with them, there's no limits to what they can do, and what they're doing is benevolent and benign. I mean, the best thing to read on this is Simon Weil's The Iliad or the Poem of Force. I mean, she has this concept of force, which is a form of coercion, which is both economic and psychological, which allows the world to continue to perpetuate injustice. Now, I start the book with the essay on Camus, which his famous book, The Plague, which became a bestseller during the pandemic, 
But I wasn't prepared for two things. I wasn't prepared for how much it is an indictment of unjust social arrangements and state violence. I had, wasn't prepared for that. And I wasn't prepared for either for how much Camus, the part he had played in disseminating Simon Weil's work and promoting her as, I mean, I think he says somewhere she is the greatest thinker, French thinker of the time. And her main preoccupation is with justice. So I think um, in relationship to the pandemic, if you go via Camus, the question of justice is barely beneath the surface of how the pandemic spreads. Well, that is obviously the case, and in relationship to climate change, when we know that the global south and the people of the global south, like in India, living in airless slums, are being told to stay indoors and be, and you know, soap dispensers are a luxury they can't possibly accede to. We should say, as with climate change, so with the pandemic, what it reveals is the vulnerability of the most exploited people, what Fanon will call, who Fanon will call the wretched of the earth. So the Russian war in Ukraine seemed to me to offer a get out clause for quite a few people, which is we're on the right side in the war against Ukraine, so that the West versus dictatorship then slides out or gets rid of the opposition between the global north and the global south. It's as if it's sidelined. It's as if that's something we don't have to talk about because the moral parameters of this war are so clear. So I think I was saying, although I don't say it quite as clearly as this, and maybe that was a good thing, that actually the war is serving the function of disavowal in relation to what we saw during the pandemic. It's a kind of clean-up job, which doesn't mean that Russia should not be condemned, and it doesn't mean that Ukraine should not be supported. I mean, there is a left critique of the Russian invasion of Ukraine or the wholehearted support for Ukraine, which argues that NATO is an aggressive institution and that it was expanding on the flank of Russia. And how would we feel? And there is a kind of position where... You're not allowed to say that because it looks as if you're legitimating Russia's invasion. And But because I think psychoanalytically, I always think it's crucial to hold two or three more things in your head at the same time, even if they contradict each other. That's Freud's concept of overdetermination. So it must be possible to say the invasion is unacceptable and must be defeated. But at the same time, the Russians have their reasons for dread in relationship to the West, which has hardly been Pacific since the end of the Second World War. So this is part of my general vocabulary, Alex, which I know you, you've picked out and you know about, which is where you've got to try and say two things. I'll just make a leap across and back to on violence and on violence against women, where I say I want, I wanted Weinstein to be at the butt of the law. I wanted him to go down for a very long time, but I also think sexuality is lawless. And you need to find a space in which you can say both those things at once. And it's very difficult. So that's an overarching concern in my writing, which is how many things can you say at once and what do you do when you're faced with them? I wonder if the difficulty in having that nuance and being able to see that, yes, indeed, Putin needs to be held responsible for the invasion of Ukraine, but that also the West's you know, pretty humiliating treatment of Russia through the 1990s and, and the expansion of NATO is still relevant. I wonder if some of that is to do with just the kind of the rawness of the situation. Because if we think historically, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, 
But in Gilbert Ashkar's new book that he's written on China and Russia and, and the so-called New Cold War, he makes the point that when we look at the history of Nazi Germany and when historians are writing about the rise of, of Hitler and the Nazis and they point to the humiliation of Germany after World War I and the Versailles Treaty and so on, nobody says that's justification for what the Nazis were doing. And it seems that at a certain historical remove, we, we can see that, that nuance and we can see the sort of background conditions which, which enable the Nazis but don't, don't justify their actions. But perhaps we can't see it at the moment because the situation is so raw and there's, there's so much violence and, and death occurring right now, which Vladimir Putin is, of course, primarily responsible, even if it's within a context that the United States has contributed to creating. Well, I think a very good example would be Simone Weil's, the time she took to come out against Hitler. I mean, she was a pacifist for a long time, and some people thought she was a traitor. Some people thought she was collaborating with Vichy, which I don't think is true for a minute. But it is certainly the case that she felt that world, Germany being defeated would be pointless unless France gave up its colonies, which is to say that unless the worst injustices of the 20th century, which was colonization as far as she was concerned, because the Holocaust, the Shoah, had not happened at that point. But unless that is addressed, then France going to war against Germany is simply veiling over its own complicity in what have also been genocidal crimes. Now, this is very difficult because people think you're then comparing the Holocaust with colonialism. Well, you're not. As Achim Bembe has said, you're simply saying that there were two horrors of the 20th century and one was colonization and the other one was the Nazi genocide. And you need to find a way of talking about them together without reducing one to the other. Edward Said is brilliant on this in his wonderful essay, Bases of Coexistence. He said, you know, one is not identical to the other, but you've got to discuss their connection. You have to. It's the same world. So she took a while. But once... Hitler invaded Prague, she changed sides and she was she worked then worked for the resistance. I mean she was absolutely unbudgeable in her opposition to Hitler once she made that move. But the analysis remains. The analysis remains and is supported by the struggle for independence of Algeria and so on that then followed and is supported by what we see now which is the struggle over the memory of colonization and slavery and the desire to tell a different story from the congratulatory one about British Empire is at the heart of right-wing thinking at the moment. They will go to any lengths to stop that from happening. And actually, there was something extraordinary I read in the papers the other day, which I would love to include in this discussion, which is a right-wing Finnish MP who said, I am full of hatred and rage. What are you doing to my psyche, Islam? And I thought, now that really was, you know, hitting the jackpot in terms of perversion, political perversion, because she was actually accusing Islam of provoking hatred and rage in her, which then becomes their responsibility that her psyche is damaged. I mean, it's so tortured and so crazy, but it is acknowledging the psychic factors. That's what's interesting about it. And it is, it's what psychoanalysts would call violent innocence. Christopher Bolas is brilliant on this. He has an essay called Violent Innocence, which is when you feel hatred in yourself and you project it onto the other as their property. And then guess what? Because you've dislodged it all into the other person, it's then going to come and get you because that's what happens if you try and get rid of something. 
you know, it's like the child who calls the mother or father into the bedroom and says, you know, there's something horrible under my bed. And one response is say, I've got it. It's under, and I put it outside the window. Disaster, because something outside the window can come back in. So there has to be a different way of incorporating the thing you're trying to get rid of. It is fundamental to psychoanalysis that we try to innocent ourselves by getting rid of the stuff that we can't bear in our own minds. So I think we need a different, I argue throughout the book, we need a different psychic dispensation where these things could be understood more fully as part of politics. Going back to Simone Weil, so one might think that that refusal to adopt the position of, of heroic innocence and, and, as you say, attributing all bad characteristics to the opposing side, one might think that in refusing that position, that could inevitably lead to a purely pacifist perspective or, or a kind of political quietism. But of course, as you, as you say, they did eventually become a supporter of the Allied cause. And for you, there's no contradiction there. It's, it's perfectly possible to fight fiercely and to fight on the side of uh, the United States or, or the British during World War II, say, and to retain a critique of those powers and those societies and seek their transformation. Because after all, you know, there were left-wing soldiers fighting in the British military who hated Churchill and wanted to see the end of the empire, but were prepared to fight in Churchill's army to defeat Hitler. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. Listen, I've just found a quote from the book, which is Simon Weil talking about how we deal with what we don't like inside us. Is it okay if I just read it? It's very short. Insofar as we register the evil and ugliness within us, it horrifies us, and we reject it like vomit. Through the operation of transference, a psychonetic concept, by the way, but that's not what she means, we transport this discomfort into the things that surround us, we get rid of it. But these same things which turn ugly and solid in turn send back to us increase the ill we have lodged inside them. In this process of exchange, the evil within us expands and we start to feel that the very milieu in which we are living is a poison. So I think what Simon Weil is saying is that we all have a reckoning to do with ourselves. So you fight against Hitler, but you don't deny the violence of the French colonies in claiming their share of brown and yellow flesh, as she puts it. You don't deny that your nation is also one corrupt and two violent against other peoples. And if you do, then the killing will never stop. Because if you project into the other everything you hate about yourself, you're intimately connected to that other first point. Secondly, that evil's going to turn them ugly and solid in turn, and you will feel yourself the target of the return of that negativity. So you've got to find a world in which you can own and possess what you like least about yourself. And there's another example of this, which I always think is very important, which is the situation in Israel-Palestine, on which I've also tried to write. It's incredibly hard and painful to do so. And that is the idea. You know, well, Golda Meir summed it up once when she said, all the wars against Israel, Israel has had nothing to do with them. I, Israel can never see itself as the origins of the violence in which it participates. It's always the other that's attacking it. And it can't see, although some Israelis could see, I mean, Martin Buber could certainly see, and Shulamit Haraven could certainly see, and David Grossman certainly sees, that, you know, there was a colossal injustice at the beginning of the founding of the State of Israel, which doesn't deny how crucial and essential that founding was felt to be, which 
gets denied in such a way that Palestinians are always the origins of the violence, even though there are people under occupation. So when you start to look around, you can see that this distribution of innocence and violence, which Simon Weil describes in that passage, in a passage that sounds like Melanie Klein, by the way, the British-Austrian psychoanalyst, that, that distribution of violence and innocence is in some ways the core of what licenses people to commit violence or not. On the theme of self-deception and, and denial of reality and, and going back to Camus' The Plague, which, as you say, became a bestseller during the pandemic, you write in the book that Camus' book taught me how cleverly defensive and self-blinding are the capacities of the human mind. Perhaps the most difficult thing to acknowledge is the fact that however inexplicable the arrival of a plague or pandemic might feel, however indiscriminately death-dealing, it is part of history, something which human societies and those who make up their number bring upon themselves. Would it though be fair to say that not all human-made etiologies of the pandemic are equally acknowledgeable? So for example, the so-called China lab leak theory has gained increasing traction over time, and that theory does involve human agency, but it pins the blame on a particular actor. It pins the blame on this laboratory, it, it pins the blame on the Chinese authorities, rather than implicating humanity or capitalism more generally, in terms of the encroachment upon and destruction of nature, as is the case with the theory of zoonotic spillover. Do you think that explains why the lab leak theory is acquiring increasing number of adherents over time? because it's easier to acknowledge human agency if that human agency is put at some distance. Well, it can't be a, a coincidence that all this is happening at the same time as, you know, our government is insisting the greatest threat to world security and also in the US, the greatest threat to world security is China. And it is interesting to see the fight against what's happening in Hong Kong and the legitimate verbal support for human rights and the fear of the occupation of Taiwan and everything means that this discourse can be cloaked entirely in terms of human rights and Western values versus sort of Asian brutality and barbarism and the, and the curse of communism. I mean, the way this divides up is incredible. And of course, if China was responsible because they're irresponsible, corrupt, dangerous people working in laboratories without the right protection, then we don't have to think about anything. And as you say, we don't have to think about the zoonotic spillover and the way that was on the local markets. I mean, we are on a daily basis destroying the environment in which we live, you know, and the plague, the pandemic or the plague, however you want to call it, is a manifestation of that, you know, it's because the way it's spread, like no, you know, big pharma controlling the rights, the patents to vaccination so that people in the global south couldn't produce the drugs cheaply. I mean, that's the classic example of how the, even if the, even if the start was the Chinese laboratory, those kinds of distribution are totally man-made and totally unjust. I mean, there's no other way to describe them. So I think the pandemic in the end has brought us up against the clash between, I think this is what you're saying, uh, it's between accountability and self and violent innocence. I think it's a very clear demonstration of how those two things battle each other. And I don't want to simply fall into the trap of saying some people, you know, are totally capable of acknowledging what's bad about themselves and some people are blinded and turning into fascists. I think that's too simple because if you think psychologically, then everybody has all of this in them and how you actually make decisions on your actions 
is kind of fragile and tentative and can be very fast or can be the result of long reflection. I will say one thing about that, which is I end the introduction by quoting Simon Weil on reflection and thought. Simon Weil says, thought like love is corrosive to the social order, always. And nobody can force you to think or deprive you of your right to think, which, by the way, is something that Othello, Iago, says to Othello. He says, you're trying to take away... In fact, I've probably got the quote here. It's an amazing quote from Othello where he says, Good my lord, pardon me, though I am bound to every act of duty, I am not bound to that all slaves are free to utter my thoughts. So this is remarkable because he's putting in the mouth of the villain the claim of slaves to at least be free not to say what they're thinking. So it's a wonderful little twist because really that thought should come from Othello or it should come from somebody who's subordinated or it should come from Amelia, Desdemona's handmaid, maiden or assistant or whatever. It should come from the oppressed. And he, well, of course, Iago is oppressed. It's a moment where something about oppression erupts where you don't expect it because you think of it, Iago just a manipulator. So Simon Weil is brilliant on the power of thinking to help find a way through some of these twisted pathways I've been trying to describe. So I think what she says is very encouraging. The second chapter of the book is titled To Die One's Own Death, Thinking with Freud in a Time of Pandemic. And you write about how in 1920, two years after the calamity of the Great War, Freud's daughter, Sophie, died during the fourth wave of the so-called Spanish flu, which had ravaged Europe since the last year of the war that influenza pandemic being the most devastating in the 20th century with a higher death toll than the two world wars combined. Though it's little discussed today, even if the COVID-19 pandemic raised its prominence somewhat. Before we talk about Freud and his reaction to the death of Sophie, why do you think the Spanish flu has receded so far from consciousness? And do you fear that something similar might happen with COVID-19? which at the moment seems a little hard to imagine because the question of lockdowns and and vaccines has become such a major part of the so-called culture wars. Well, as Rachel Whitefield says about a possible permanent memorial for COVID-19 and whether the memorial wall should be made permanent or not, she says we need time. We need to stand back and reflect and think about it. And therefore, she's not pronouncing either way, but just there has to be a period of reflection. We know that the research, several of the research laboratories that are investigating both the possibility of another pandemic and how we should respond to it, those programs have been shut down. We know that the government report, commissioned reports on COVID are saying that Britain was woefully unprepared and it was hugely to do with conservative austerity, which meant that the equipment was not available and, and so on and so forth, something which Cameron denies. Boris Johnson gave us the example of a politician who was forgetting even whilst it was happening, right? I mean, he nearly died. He refused to meet the families of the bereaved. He has this intractable, unbudgeable kind of boosterism and happiness about him, which is so disgusting because it's attached to such a virulent misogyny and racism that it's as if the forgetting is being sort of inscribed into a certain scandalous, conservative playfulness in his case. 
and he's been booted out, which I think has to be a good sign. But whether the money is going to be turned back into a greater preparedness for the next pandemic, which we're all being told already is going to be worse, but also being told that the earth is burning where well, we can see it. And it doesn't seem, I mean, there's a big question here, which we would have to, we would have to raise, which is about how much reality people can bear, how much is tolerable and how much is subject to denial and whether denial is always bad or not, which I don't think it is. So I think the answer to your question is that this is already happening. And that then does become a political question about redistribution of resources. But why was the Spanish flu forgotten? I think probably because the narratives around it don't succumb to moral distribution of the kind that wars do. I think we're all like that soldier who said, thank God for this war, because it's unambiguous. So now I can kill with impunity. I think that's a very common pattern. Also, the other reason why is because the pandemic, to go back to the question about denial, brings us up against, I mean, the subtitle of the book is, and in the American edition, it'll be called The Plague Living Death in Our Times. But Fitzcarraldo, who I thrilled to be publishing with, do not have subtitles on the front cover. So it's the plague, and that's it. But the real sort of theme of the book is living death in our times, what the pandemic has forced us to have to live and think about. And one of the things it's done is it's made us all, it's brought mortality right to the front door of every house in the country. And one of my arguments in the book, in the piece on sexual abuse in the home, domestic abuse, is the, is the role of women, as I discuss in my book on mothers, to make the world safe and everybody okay and to keep your baby smiling. You obviously don't want your baby to cry. You want the baby to smile. You want it to be happy. You know, you want, you want what's best. You want things to work out. You want it to be a manageable world. Well, in fact, it's an immensely precarious, violent and dangerous world, which is in the process of destroying itself. And it's as if the pandemic has put this in our faces. And then I think the reason why there's been so much increase of domestic violence against women is because women are not fulfilling the brief, which is to make everything okay, which is an impossible brief in any case. And I believe women know that. And that's another reason why I think men are so hostile to them. 54,000 women a year on average are sacked for being pregnant in the UK. So I think, to put it very crudely, the pandemic brought us up against life and death matters. What Julia Kristeva, the psychoanalyst, calls the phobic core of humanity. We are right to be frightened, but we put it aside. The pandemic makes that impossible. So then who's to blame? And it's often women. And also, of course, being made to stay home all the time makes a lot of men feel they're being turned into women, which is even worse. So I think the domestic violence question really takes us to the core of what we're able and willing to tolerate and what really is not allowed in a patriarchal culture. So sticking with Freud for a moment, you describe how in 1924, Fritz Wittles, Freud's first biographer, suggested that there was a link between Sophie's death from the Spanish flu and Freud's 1920 work, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, in which Freud introduced the idea of the death drive for the first time. Could you say something on the concept of the death drive and how it was an idea that provoked enormous hostility, even among Freud's associates and admirers, and how Freud vehemently rejected the idea that the emergence of the concept related to Sophie's death and why you find that dismissal from Freud ultimately unconvincing? 
Well, it's completely implausible, thanks to Ilse Gunbrich Simitis, who got out the original draft of the Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And in the end, he added a whole new chapter, which is all about the kind of theoretical implications of a sudden death and the total unacceptability of death that appears random and casual and careless and criminal, which of course is what the bereaved parents are saying about the death of their loved ones, and what Freud calls dying one's own death. He said the organism wishes to die after its own fashion. The purpose of all life is death, which was, of course, very shocking for many people at the time. What he's saying is that there is a process, a bit like in Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, when Lyra and her friend head off to the island of the dead, and their death is accompanying them. And they are contrasted like they're demons on their shoulders. Their demons accompany them, and their deaths accompany them. And they are contrasted with the people who take the boat to the island of the dead and argue with the boatkeeper about whether they're going to die or not. And the richest are the worst because the richest believe their wealth will save them. Okay. So there's a real feeling that the idea that death, that, that you have a right to your own death. And I ended up saying in that piece, dying in a pandemic is no way to die because it was anonymous, isolated. I mean, one of the images, which is the worst one for me, is is the bodies being burnt on the streets of Delhi and India and then put in unmarked graves, mass graves. I mean, it was just horrendous, and not only in India. And the feeling that, you know, death if death is random or subject to human miscalculation, then somebody can be denied their own death. They have not lived their own death. And Winnicott famously says, oh God, please may I be alive when I die. So I just found this all incredibly moving and could see Freud grappling with what might or might not be a good death. You know, what, how do we want to die? And of course, we spend most of our time trying not to think about that unless you're ill or dementing or suffering in some way, in which case it's in your face, but it was in everybody's face during the pandemic. So I felt, and what was also brilliant about Freud's concept is that it isn't just the organism following its own death journey in some slight creative way, some self-affirming way, as well as the end of a life. It was also the death drive as the inherent aggression, the kind of aggression that Simon Weil is talking about in that quote, where you try and get rid of the ugly part of yourself. So he's on two counts saying, take this on board. It's a kind of plea, and I thought that was rather stunning and something worth thinking about in the middle of the pandemic. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. It really does help to bring in new listeners. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. Thanks for listening. (music) 